Well, we have been going through a series on the contemplative way, and the reason for that is, is really basic and core to us, because we believe that Jesus' way was the contemplative way, and it's also the basis of what we do here at The Effect. What is the contemplative way? And I have to define that every time, because we've got new people coming in and, and, and going and such. But also, it's good to hear it over and over again, because the contemplative way is pretty much exactly the opposite of the way we live in the modern West. Exactly the opposite. Everything in our lives is geared towards so much information flow, constant data coming through, multitasking, tasks all over the place, thinking, completely focused on outcome, completely focused on goals, completely focused on everything that we do here is only a means to another end. And so we're always someplace other than where we really are at the same time. In contemplation, you're trying to undo all that. You know, Descartes, René Descartes, the famous French philosopher, famously said, cogito ergo sum, which means I think, therefore I am. But a contemplative would really say, I am, therefore I think. Because beneath our thoughts, beneath everything that we think that makes us us, our thought stream, our emotions, our behavior patterns, underneath that there is a deeper identity that is truly us. Not this voice in our head. That voice in the head that you hear and, and listen to and cultivate, that's not you. We think that's us, but it's not us. There is an us that's deeper than that. And only when we step aside from our thought stream, step aside from emotions, and anything that brings our attention to a focal point that we think on, that takes us away from purely being in this moment, when we do that, finally, then we can start to have a sense of what ultimate reality is really all about that we call God. We call God, well, you call ultimate reality God. And when we start to know something about who this God is, who this Father is, then and only then can we start to know something about who we are. So the contemplative way, spiritual journey, is about identity. Who are we? Because unless we know who we are, then we can't know why we're here, what we're supposed to do. Meaning and purpose flows out of identity. Identity flows out of knowing this ultimate reality, what this moment really holds our God. When you really look at Jesus' teaching, when you look at his life message, when you look at the, the events and the behavior in his life as recorded in the New Testament, you'll see this over and over again, that his way was a contemplative way. And this is what we're trying to do. So the contemplative way as it's practiced, and we just started to talk about what it means to be mindful last week, but the contemplative way makes us mindful, makes us present, makes us aware, all of these things in the moment. We can't be good relators. We can't be good partners unless we're present and aware and actually with the person with whom we're speaking. And so contemplative way makes us all of those things. But it makes us something else. And this something I think is essential, especially in the direction our world is going. It makes us non-dual. Dualism is something that is... It's present with us all throughout life. It's been with us in every culture at every time in human history. But more so right now in the West and really more so right now in our current climate in the world today. Dualism is dividing up anything conceptually into two opposing or contrasting elements. 
So if we look at life through a dualistic lens, we're looking at life as being divided into camps. So it can be light and dark and good and evil and male and female and all these different spirit and matter, all these ideas where we have a, a dividing line and two things that are in opposition. God and the devil, two things in opposition. The genius of the ancient Jews is that they were non-dual. They saw their God as one. They named their God oneness. Alaha, Elohim, means oneness. Or more to the point, it means multiple things functioning as one. So when we talk about non-dual consciousness or non-dual thinking, we're not talking about not seeing the differences between us and others or between different things in life, but we're seeing beneath that, just like we're looking beneath our thoughts to the connection and the unity that binds everything together. See, all of us are, as people, we're all made of the same stuff. We're all people. We play different roles. you know. We have different attributes and characteristics. We like or don't like each other. But underneath all of that stuff is a unity and a sameness that we can start to see once we clear out all of that noise, all of that thought process. Why was Jesus so strong in telling us not to judge? Because judgment creates those distinctions. Judgment is what causes dualistic thinking. And we're trying to do the opposite of that, to start to see how everything comes to one point. This is where we're trying to get. You know, and right now, in this world today, things are becoming more and more dualistic. You know, sometimes um, I, I had planned to talk about something different today. But sometimes just the bits and pieces of the week just sort of catch up with me so that by Thursday or Friday, I realize they're making a point that I can't ignore anymore. And this is kind of what happened this week. There was just a certain flow of things that just kept moving me in a direction. And the direction is toward politics. And politics is something that we don't speak about here at the effect from the pulpit. And for good reason we don't do that. Because politics automatically is dualistic, right? It divides things. It separates them. And so it's not that I or we don't have a political point of view. Of course we do. It's just that you're not going to hear it. And the reason you're not going to hear it is that we're not here to tell you what to think. We're not here to tell you what to do. You know? And unless or until we begin to start to see everything as one, then our politics are not going to make any sense. And this is what's starting to happen. Unless we start to see us all as one, then politics is just another club we join. It just becomes about rightness and wrongness. It becomes about power and control. But it stops becoming about making our community better, making our lives better, making everyone's life better to the greatest extent that we can. Politics will never be perfect. There is no perfect solution in the macro. But if we're not in the micro seeing things as connected and one, seeing across the aisle another human being who deserves our love and respect, then how in the world can our politics be anything except harmful, anything except dangerous, really? So our job here at The Effect, what we believe, is to help individuals to find a path toward seeing that oneness and seeing that connection toward that non-dual consciousness. And then you make your own choices. You know? So whether... Democrat or Republican or independent, libertarian, anything in between, having people who care about both sides, all sides, is essential 
to making our nation, our community, our city, our state, what it's supposed to be, our church, our family, what it's supposed to be. And so we take a little different tack on this. But even though we don't talk about politics, sometimes it's okay to talk about the process of politics. And I guess that's what I wanted to do today in a sort of tangential way. You know, two weeks ago we had the Orlando shootings. And that just stirred up so much about our nation, where our nation is going, terrorism, homophobia. So many issues were included in that one horrible attack. Immigration issues came up. This week, we had the British vote to exit the European Union, which is, is just a tsunami. We don't even know what the effects of that are going to be yet. And then I got an email from a friend of mine who lives in England, who is a Jew, a converted Jew, but practicing what he calls as a Talmudi, a follower of Jesus, but through the Jewish faith. And then to top it all off, Nina sent me an article that kind of put the cherry on top of everything. And I started to see all these things as connected, as one thing. I started to see them non-dually, you see. And I wanted to talk about that. You know, as the terror threat grows in our country and the instability grows, people are going to get more and more fearful. When people get fearful, they start looking for strong leaders to make them feel safe. But if there's nobody at the top, if there's nobody in actual elected places in our government or appointed places in our government who are making us feel safe, then a vacuum sets in. And I think this is exactly what's happening right now. Because when there's no help at the top, then people start to feel like they have to take things into their own hands. And grassroots movements start, start moving forward and, can, and picking up steam. And they start to take things into their own hands. It seems to me that there's a lack of effective policy on terrorism and immigration and some of these big issues that are affecting us so hugely that we're being set up for a backlash and the backlash is starting to happen. And I wanted to read a little bit of my friend's email. Now he just got a picture. His name is Shmulek and uh, he's a little, just a little frail, skinny guy, really dark, has a long beard. For all the world, looks like it could be Ayatollah Khomeini's cousin or something, you know. But he's Jewish and he's the most lovely guy in the world. He's a lover of Jesus and, and, and Jesus' teaching. And he writes, in recent months, uh, recent months have been very difficult in Britain with this EU vote. Lincolnshire is the most right-wing county in England, and this is where he lives, and there are fascist groups here like the Anglian Patriots who hold demonstrations in Lincoln. My sister was driving me to the hospital to see my mom and we drove down a street past a school. There were other cars driving down the same street, but this guy in skinhead gear who said he was governor of the school said we could not drive down that street. He gathered a crowd of people around him and us and my sister had to call the police. The only reason I can think of is because of my long beard, I look like a Muslim and my sister is quite dark, so he picked on us and, and ignored the other cars. There have been occasions when I have been hobbling along on a crowded street. He has to walk with a cane because of some infirmity. And someone has walked directly into my path and not given way, forcing me to step into the road that is giving me no option to go anywhere else. If I could, I'd move to London. There are still nice people here, but the right-wingers make it a dark place if you're not perceived as British. By now, you probably heard the UK vote to leave the EU. Scotland will probably hold another vote for independence and eventually split with the UK. 
Gibraltar will have a tougher time with Spain causing problems on their border. And if you don't know, Gibraltar is a little British territory right at the southern tip of Spain on the Straits. They got the rock, you know. And they were supposedly solid as a British territory, but now the EU vote is calling everything into question again. It also looks like we will have a new prime minister soon. Well, now they will. This is before Cameron stepped down. And this will be someone that we, won't, we didn't even elect at all. Going on what we were talking about in our previous emails, I think social media has democratized everyone's opinion so that an aggressive, uninformed view has much greater weight, has as much weight now as an informed one. Ridiculous views have access to a much wider audience. Conspiracy theories have more importance and, and silly memes abound. And yet, you know, in all this, I have this strong feeling that God is in charge, that everything is part of God's plan. Things will get bad before they get better. Maybe God thinks people need to be shown the consequences of their views. I hope they get better soon. See, people living in that vacuum of policy decisions with no direct help, they're living the consequences of policies or lack of policies. And if there's no help, if there's no, if there's no voice for them, then the fear really starts to set in. The desperation starts to set in. And that causes the backlash that we're seeing at street level. You know, It's non-rational. And what it does is it drives her deeper into dualism. It drives us deeper into an us-and-them sort of scenario. We build the walls of our fortress around our group and then we shelve out anyone else. And we see them as less than us, less than human somehow. Someone that we can do these things to. And of course, it's, it's, it's not, there's no discretion involved. There's no distinction made between good people or bad people in that other group. They're all painted with the same brush. The baby goes out with the bathwater. A lot of good people are going to get hurt in these scenarios. But it's understandable when you look at What's happening? You know, the fear that sets in, driving us into deeper and deeper division. And it's the same with our political groups, if you think about it. In politics today, there really isn't any discourse. People aren't talking to each other. They have drawn hard and fast lines. You know, the easiest one is between Republicans and Democrats. You know, they're not just opposing views on the other side, not just someone who believes something different anymore. We're right and you're wrong. You know, politics is a new religion in many cases. We're going to heaven, you're going to hell. We're right, you're wrong. And not only that, we're good and you're evil. You see this being played out in the discourse, even in broadcast television. The debates that are being held or just the commentators that come on. You see this kind of dualistic thinking, this huge division where people are no longer seeing each other as peers, as human beings. They're not talking to each other anymore. There's just persuasion at any cost. And if there's not persuasion, then it's just a bulldozing over, a talking over to get points over and, and just say something long enough and loud enough so that people start to actually believe it at some level. You know, we've talked about these kinds of issues in here before in terms of the micro and the macro. We talked about how in the macro, in the group setting, justice is the highest good. And so the law becomes the main instrument for the survival of the group. Because without things being balanced, without the scales being balanced, then the group is lost. But on the micro level, the highest good is mercy and compassion. Because if all you're doing in your personal relationships is balancing scales, then you're just intolerant. You're not present. 
You're not really seeing the other person and able to respond to them and move with them and decide with them and make choices that are going to have the greatest effect on everyone around. You're just following rules. And so we've talked about these kinds of issues in terms of this distinction between compassion and justice and how we need to be able to code shift between the two, to be able to go to justice in micro-policy decisions and when we're working with groups and then move from flow back into mercy and compassion when we're moving into one-on-one relationships. And then yesterday, Nina sent me this article and it kind of took the whole situation and put it in a contemplative point of view because it was talking about this issue of duality. And what I wanted to do was just read through it and, and let's just kind of read through it together and see if it starts to make sense at a level that we can start to see how this can affect our choices, this can affect our attitudes and our viewpoints as we move through what is definitely going to get worse before it gets better. The world is so perched on a fragile knife's edge right now. A lot of things, and since there doesn't seem to be political will to do anything that might cost votes, then what they will probably do is wait till the system starts to crash and then they can write in and start to fix things. How do we respond? How do we act through the circumstances that we may be going through? This is uh, called At the Edge of Inside and it's written by David Brooks. He writes, In any organization, there are some people who serve at the core. These are insiders. And these insiders are in the rooms when the decisions are made. Hillary Clinton, for example, is now at the core of the Democratic Party. Then there are outsiders. They throw missiles from beyond the walls. They are untouched by internal loyalties and try to take over from without. Donald Trump is a Republican outsider. But there's also a third position in any organization. Those who are at the edge of the inside. These people are within the organization, but they're not subsumed or consumed by the groupthink. They work at the boundaries, the bridges, the entranceways. I borrow this concept from Richard Rohr, a Franciscan priest who lives in Albuquerque. His point is that people who live at the edge of the inside have crucial roles to play. As he writes in his pamphlet, The Eight Core Principles, when you live on the edge of any group, you are free from its central seductions, but also free to hear its core message in very new and creative ways. A person at the edge of the inside can see what's good about the group, but what's also good about rival groups. Rohr writes, a doorkeeper must love both the inside and the outside of his or her group and know how to move between these two loves. A person at the edge of inside can be the strongest reformer. This person has the loyalty of a faithful insider, but the judgment of the critical outsider. Martin Luther King Jr. had an authentic inner experience of what it meant to be American. The love allowed him to critique America from the values he learned from America. He could be utterly relentless in bringing America back closer to herself precisely because his devotion to American ideals was so fervent. A person on the edge of inside knows how to take advantage of the standards and practices of an organization but not be imprisoned by them. Rohr writes, You have learned the rules well enough to know how to break the rules properly, which is not really to break them at all, but to find their true purpose, not to abolish the law, but to complete it. The person on the edge of the inside is involved in constant change, 
The true insiders are so deep inside they often get confused by trivia and locked into the status quo. The outsider is throwing bombs and dreaming of far-off transformational revolution, but the person at the doorway is seeing constant comings and goings. As Rohr says, involved in a process of perpetual transformation, not a belonging system, more interested in being a searcher than a settler. Insiders and outsiders are threatened by those on the other side of the barrier. But a person on the edge of inside neither idolizes the us or demonizes the them. Such a person sees different groups as partners in a reality that is paradoxical, complementary, and unfolding. Now, there are downsides to being at the edge of inside. You never lose yourself in a full commitment. You may be respected and befriended, but you are not loved as completely as the people at the core, the band of brothers. You enjoy neither the purity of the outsider nor that of the true believer. And I remember that so clearly. After leaving the Catholic Church for about 10 years and, and things going sideways in my life and searching, searching, searching through every faith tradition and philosophy that I could think of, when I landed back in an evangelical church, I just so wanted to be on the inside looking out than the outside looking in. I was just so tired of being in that place where I didn't feel like I had a country. I didn't feel like I had a place to lay my head. And so I tried really hard to be the good company man at the church. You know, I did the Bible studies and I learned all the rules and I was trying so hard. And of course, the absurdities kicked me back out again. But the point is, you just want to be inside. That call is so strong for us to be part of a group that we will let go of that position at the door, that place of non-dual thinking. It's easier to flop down one side or the other, either be inside or outside. Those are comfortable positions. But the place at the door, I like to call a place of sacred tension. It requires something of you. It requires some effort to stay focused, to stay present, to be watching what is really happening and to make your decisions based on that rather than just company lines, rather than just dogma or creed. It's a different kind of experience. But once you get used to it, it's the most liberating of all. He continues, The person on the edge of inside can see reality clearly. The insiders and the outsiders tend to think in dualistic ways, us versus them, this or that. But as Rohr would say, the beginning of wisdom is to fight the natural tendency to be dualistic. It is to fight the natural ego of the group. The person on the edge of inside is more likely to see the wholeness of any situation, to see how us and them, which seem superficially opposed, are actually in complementary relationship within some larger process. Abraham Lincoln could see the divisions between North and South, but in his second inaugural, he transcended these divisions and saw both North and South as actors and partners in a larger human drama. And I wanted to read to you just a little bit of his second inaugural and watch how he brings these themes together. This was Saturday, March 4th, 1865. On the occasion corresponding to this four years ago, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it all sought to avert it. While the inaugural address was being delivered from this place, devoted altogether to saving the Union without war, 
Urgent agents were in the city seeking to destroy it without war, seeking to dissolve the union and divide its effects by negotiation. Both tar- parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish, and the war came. Neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which is already attained. Neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease with or even before the conflict itself should cease. Each looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God and each invokes his aid against the other. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. And five weeks later he was dead. But do you see what he's doing here? He is seeing his enemies in the south, the ones that he had fought so fervently for four years, as fellow human beings. He saw north and south as one nation, not two separate halves. There was to be no retribution against the south. He bore no resentment toward them. He understood why they did what they did. His whole and sole focus and purpose now, that he so beautifully said, with malice toward none, with charity for all, was to bind up what had been broken. This is non-dual thinking. This is living on the edge of inside. And unfortunately, when you do that, you end up with enemies on both sides. You don't have any place that is fully your own. There would have been northerners who thought that he was selling out, who thought that he was betraying them because of the losses that they had suffered at the hands of the South. And of course, the South would forever see him as the tyrant who overthrew their ideas of independence. And so, no one could really understand his tolerance for the other side, except those who are also living on the edge of inside. So back to David Brooks. When people are afraid or defensive, they have no tolerance for the person at the edge of inside. They want purity, rigid loyalty, and lockstep unity. But now, more than ever, we need people who have the courage to live on the edge of inside, who love their parties and organizations so much that they can critique them as a brother, operate on them from the inside as a friend, and dauntlessly insist that they live up to their truest selves. Now, moving back to the spiritual context, this is Richard Rohr from the document that Brooks used. Rohr writes, The edge of things is liminal space. And we've used that word in here before, liminal. It comes from the Latin word for threshold. It simply means a threshold or a border. And to live in liminal space means that you're occupying a position that is right at that 
threshold, right at that border, or even better, at both sides, like straddling that border. You know, one thing I like to do when you go to Mexico is get right on the border and put one foot in Mexico and the other in the United States. It's like, yeah, I'm in two countries at once. I've never been to four corners, but that would be really cool. You could be in four states at once, right? That's liminal space. It's right on the border. It's not an either or. It's a both and. It's pulling those two things together, both sides of that threshold, that doorway, pulling together into one embrace and holding that tension there. The edge of things is liminal space, a very sacred place where guardian angels are especially available and needed. The edge is a holy place, or as the Celts called it, a thin place. Don't you love that? A thin place. And you have to be taught how to live there. We talked about Moses so much in his separate shepherd consciousness over the last few weeks. When Moses is standing in front of the burning bush, that's liminal space. Something is happening there that he sees that doesn't come from his world. It comes from another world. The bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. This is not possible in our world. Something is happening from another world, and he's standing on holy ground. He needs to take off his shoes because he's standing on that boundary, on that border between this world and that, between the things of man and the things of God, between heaven and earth. All of those things, he's right there. But these things are so easily dismissed. If you were blowing through that region like we do on the freeway, he never would have taken time to notice that he was standing in liminal space. It's so easy to dismiss the things because they seem inconsequential. They seem unsubstantive, insignificant. But if we take the time and we really lock in, we see how sacred this really is. Moses had 40 years practicing being a shepherd, building his shepherd consciousness, slowing down from his 40 years in Egypt as a prince and as an administrator so that he became the person who when he entered liminal space, when he stood on holy ground, he knew to take off his shoes. He knew to see what he was seeing. To take your position on the spiritual edge of things is to learn how to move safely in and out, back and forth, across and return. It's a prophetic position, not a rebellious or antisocial one. When you live on the edge of anything, with respect and honor, and this is crucial, That means you respect and honor both sides, not just yours. You are in a very auspicious and an advantageous position. You are free from its central seductions, but also free to hear its core message in very new and creative ways. When you are at the center of something, you usually confuse essentials with non-essentials and get tied down by trivia, loyalty tests, and job security. Not much truth can happen there. We've talked in here about the four stages of spiritual growth. And that really relates to what is going on here in terms of this edge of the inside. The four stages of spiritual growth, as M. Scott Peck puts them together, the four of them are really talking about identity. And even though Scott Peck doesn't put it this way, the first stage is identity with the self. You are going to make everything happen. You are the captain of your ship. No one's going to do anything for you. You need to make it happen yourself. All your decisions are based on Machiavellian sort of ethics. You know, the the means justify the ends. The ends justify the means. And you make your choices that way. When you graduate to step two, your identity shifts from self to the group. 
Now you drink the Kool-Aid. Now you are going to just completely allow yourself to become the group think, what the group understands. Your salvation moves from just what you can do for yourself to what the group can do for you. Now here's the interesting thing. Both insiders and outsiders are both stage two people. It doesn't matter what flag you're waving. It doesn't matter what side of the fence you're on. If you have drunk the Kool-Aid, if you have become the group think, if that now the walls of your fortress are the group itself, then you are at stage two. Stage three is when life mugs you and you realize that everything that you have sold out to and sold on to is not enough, is not strong enough to be able to take you through what life is offering. You lose your sense of identity. You go into that wasteland, that, that, uh, that period of the desert time where you really don't know. Some people become very jaded, and very cynical. Some people self-describe as agnostics or atheists because everything has let them down. And the temptation there is to go back to stage one or stage two because staying in stage three is pretty intolerable. But if you can stay in that liminal space, because that's what it is, if you can stay in that liminal space and continue to hold on to that anxiety, that disturbance, continue to hold on paradoxically to what seems to be contradictory, and continue to move through with it, you can enter stage four, which is direct identity with this reality that we call God, with nothing in between. We don't need the group anymore to intercede for us. Our own obsessions and compulsions aren't driving the ship anymore. The tail's no longer wagging the dog. We can connect directly. But even in stage four, you never leave the edge of inside. You never leave the liminal space because stage four recognizes that that is an ongoing, ongoing relationship. It's just all a lot of the angst goes away because now you know your identity again, but that condition persists. And so this is it. Insiders, outsiders, stage two. The ones at the edge of inside, that's stage four. That's where we're headed. That's where we really need to be. You know, this is where we're trying to get and trying to go. Roar again. To live on the edge of inside is different than being an insider, a company man, or a dues-paying member. Yes, you have learned the rules and you understand and honor the system as far as it goes, but you do not need to protect it, defend it, or promote it. That's the genius of AA, isn't it? You know, it's not about promotion. It's about attraction. We don't need, how many of us are trying to defend God or defend God's word? Do we really need to do that? Does God need our defense? And what are we really defending? Are we defending God or are we defending our own sense of security? Psychologically, that's what's really going on. So you don't need to protect, defend, or promote it. It has served its initial and helpful function, which is what? Which is to get us into community, into accountability, into structure and discipline and service. Because without that ground, without that experience, then we don't have anything to work with. We need to know what the community is so that we can serve it better. You have learned the rules well enough to learn how to break the rules properly, which is not really to break them at all, but to find their true purpose. Not to abolish the law, but to complete it, as Jesus rightly puts it at Matthew 5.17. A doorkeeper must love both the inside and the outside of his or her group 
and know how to move between these two. This is what Jesus was fighting. The Pharisees were completely dualistic in their thinking. It was all about the law or not law. If you were following the law, you were one of us. If you were not, then we were going to cross the street so that our clothes don't even brush against you and we will have absolutely nothing to do with you. Everything was about following the law, following the rules to the nth degree so that you would have this acceptance. You were in the club. Jesus looked at the law as neither of those two things and both of those things at the same time. Take a look in your bulletins or take a look up on the, on the screens at Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Jesus says, Do not think I, be, I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses all of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What is so key here in the original language when he says that heaven and earth shall pass away until heaven and earth shall pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law. Pass away there is the word abar in Aramaic. Abar really means to cross a boundary or to cross a threshold. We're back into liminal space here. Until heaven and earth cross their thresholds, cross their boundaries, and literally merge into one another. In other words, the individual form of of earth merges into the oneness and unity of heaven and become one thing. Then the law is necessary. We need the law to direct us and guide us always toward that liminal space, always toward the edge of inside, always toward non-dual thinking and consciousness. That's what the law is there for, to take us into God's presence in an unadulterated way where we are completely connected. And then for Jesus, he's saying, the law is that essential. I'm not abolishing the law, but the law must be exceeded because unless you exceed that righteousness, that understanding of just law and rules, then you won't be able to enter kingdom either. But the law is fulfilled in liminal space, in the edge of inside, in non-dual thinking, in the oneness and unity that is created between people. How is this done, you might ask? With Jesus at Luke 9, starting at verse 51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, this is the last week before the crucifixion, He, Jesus, was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they, the Samaritans, did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Samaria stood right between Galilee and Judea. You had to go through it if you're traveling south into Judea. And the Samaritans were not hospitable to the Jews, and the Jews were not hospitable to the Samaritans. So they don't receive Jesus. Now what happens here? His disciples, James and John, saw when they saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Us and them thinking. Dualistic thinking. Right and wrong thinking. Resentment. Anger. But Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, you don't know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. 
and they went on to another village. This is Jesus bringing everything together. Just as Lincoln could see that North and South were brothers, sisters, one nation, Jesus doesn't see distinctions like Samaritan or Jew. He just sees people. And if they don't receive him for whatever reason, because of their acculturation, because of their dualistic thinking, that's no never mind. He's there to save them too. He's there to honor them too and love them too. I'm not going to call fire down on them. He'll just go to the next village. How do we move into this place? By starting to see our biases, to see our discriminating ideas and concepts, to see the judgments that we place on others that shelve us away from them, and to act as if they don't exist until they don't exist anymore. In verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of, the man, son of man has nowhere to lay his head. When you are on the edge of inside, when you are at the doorway, you're not really made to be comfortable or welcome in any one camp. There's always that little bit of disturbance. There's always that uncertainty. There's always that mistrust because you're not going right down the strike zone. You're not hitting the party line. At Matthew 10.34, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. That's a difficult saying for us. That's important to understand that when Jesus says, I am the Prince of Peace, he's using shalom. And when he's using, when he says, I didn't come to bring peace on earth here, he's using a different word that means calm or tranquility. It's really saying the same thing. When you are living on the edge of inside, there's always going to be that tension. There's always going to be the decision that you make to always be on the edge of things and not necessarily in the center if you're really going to be present to everyone that's near at least in the macro. Continuing, he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and claim everywhere the word of God. This is another really difficult saying. Now understanding when this man says, I need to bury my father first, he may have been talking about living with his father until he died to honor his father and then bury him. He might have been talking about the second burial. Jews buried people twice, first unembalmed in the tomb, and then later when they decomposed, gathered the bones and buried them again. We don't really know. And why the dead bury their dead? Some scholars have said that Jesus is talking about let the spiritually dead bury the physical dead. Those are tasks they can deal with, but you who are spiritually alive come over. You know what? I think it's as simple as Jesus saying, it's not an either-or choice. You don't have to wait to bury your father before you follow me. You can follow me right here, right now, in whatever you're doing. Of course you're not supposed to abandon your family. Of course you're not supposed to be irresponsible to your dependents. But don't make that an excuse for not starting right now what you can do from the inside out, where you sit, with what you're doing. Brother Lawrence is always telling us, don't find artificial ways to come at God. Just do what you normally do all day long, but bring the love of the Father, the awareness of God's presence into all those moments, and you've created holy ground, sacred space, liminal space, non-dual awareness. It's not either or, it's both and. And then finally at verse 61, 
Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. How much time do we spend pining away for things that are not present and missing those things that are? How much do we resist transition and change and get stuck? This is what Jesus is saying. Put it all together. Be present to the one that is right in front of you now. Because in another moment, that'll be another person and another person. Move through life with this complete presence, always at the edge of the inside. This is where we're trying to head. These difficult sayings of Jesus become quite clear, at least to me, when you put them back in this context and understanding what Jesus is trying to get us to to go for here. And finally, finishing with Richard Rohr, when you live on the edge of inside, you will almost wish you were on the outside. Then you are merely an enemy, a pagan, a persona non grata. You can largely be ignored written off, or even consider yourself martyred and special. But if you are both inside and outside, you are an ultimate threat, a possible reformer, and a lasting invitation to a much larger world. You know, I remember when Rob Bell wrote Love Wins and the firestorm that they created within the evangelical community, but there was one really insightful article And this guy said, this will be the last time that evangelicals criticize Rob Bell because he has gone so far this time that he will no longer be seen as one of them. And once he's outside the camp, he can be safely ignored, discarded, thrown away. But as long as he thought, as long as evangelicals thought Bell was one of them, then they watched him intensely, they followed him, they read his books, they won't even read the next book, But they were following him and, of course, criticizing, trying to bring him back, trying to persuade him back to the group think. But once he crossed that line, he was gone. Now, this is exactly what happened to Jesus if you look at the New Testament record. The Pharisees followed Jesus around all over the place. Why do you think they're always popping up in grain fields and, and houses and towns, you know, asking Jesus all these questions? Someone said it's like a musical comedy where these people are popping up and going and bursting into song, you know? They were following him around. He was the, the, the rabbi du jour. He was the one who had come on, burst on the scene. They saw him as one of their own. Some scholars think Jesus was a Pharisee because of his belief system was closest to the Pharisees of the four main groups of Judaism at the time. But as they listened to him, it just wasn't sounding right. It just wasn't computing. It wasn't hitting the strike zone. He wasn't using the words that they were used to hearing. And something was not right. And they kept pounding him and pounding him and trying to understand. And then finally, when he crossed that line, it was over. He was Am Ha'aretz. He was a people, a person of the land. He was, a, he was someone who stood outside the law and no longer was covered by their care. And that's when they plotted to kill him. This is what happens when we, we move into these spaces, when we move into this dualistic thinking. But living on the edge of inside is non-dual. But that can only come from a contemplative way of living life, from contemplative practice, to continue to practice being quiet enough, present enough, aware enough, to see that whatever shapes we take, whatever roles we play as people, whatever clubs we join, that we're all the same. We're made of the same stuff. 
It's God's stuff, which is love and unity. That's at the core of every one of us. Now the decisions that we make, politically or within our own families, if they're made out of duality, there will always be winners and losers. There will always be separate camps. And at the political level and the macro, you know what? That's the best we can do. There will always be winners and losers in our communities at the national level. But at the micro level, everybody gets paid the same. Whatever time you show up for work in God's economy, at the individual level, we all get paid the same. We are all equal in God's eyes. We're all winners, if you want to look at it that way. And if we can break through into that kind of thinking, then we can start to make decisions and treat people in the same way. It's not a zero-sum game anymore. There aren't winners and losers. There's always more to go around. But as the world gets less stable, and it will, as it gets scarier, as it gets more polarized and dualistic, and the more time you spend watching cable news or reading on Facebook and the Internet, you're going to feel that tug that's pulling you apart and pulling you to one side of another. And it's up to us, it's up to each one of us to go non-dual, to fight against that pull for us to keep seeing things as us and them, to practice this contemplative mindfulness, this centering prayer, whatever we use to create the, va- the balance, the common sense, the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. And as we do that, each one of us individually, it may not change the course of history, but it's going to change the course of our history, personally, our personal history, our family's history, And within the sphere of our influence, it can make profound changes. And that's really all we can do as humans. But if enough humans will do this, if enough humans will move into this kind of space, humanity can follow. Jesus knew that kingdom moves from the inside out. And when enough people in a community have moved into kingdom, moved into this non-dual thinking and relating that the rules the customs the the whole policy of the community can follow and it doesn't even take a majority it just takes that tipping point start with ourselves resist the flow resist the urge now to continue to be polarized and connect at ever deeper levels find God in the midst and he will guide you He will guide every single one of us. That's a promise that he made to us. Let's pray. Father, it is a scary world. You understand our fear. You understand our disturbance. You understand our just amazement sometimes at the atrocities that sometimes it just truly seems that good has become evil and evil good and we don't know which end is up anymore. But you are our gyroscope. You are the center that keeps us balanced and lets us know which end really is up. Help us to continue to turn to you. Help us to quiet things down, to take the time to find you in the real way that we need to be able to understand who we are in our own meaning and purpose in life. Thank you, Father, for being that for every one of us. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. 
Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.